John chapter 6. As we said last week, we are going to be sharing in the, the area of spiritual warfare, a series that we've titled Learning to Fight. This morning is not a message in that category. Um, for a couple of reasons, we felt like instead of sharing those messages back to back to back, that we would give a little bit of room for you to chew on some of those things. I would encourage covenant group leaders who have meetings this week, uh, obviously as the Lord leads you in this message to apply it, but to seek to go back and to grab some of the realm of, of content from last week's message. We're going to try and put the remainder of that series of messages on covenant group meeting week so that we can give some more attention to the content of that specifically. Um, but this morning we're going to talk about trying to solve world hunger. Didn't know that there was a solution for that. But there is, and this passage helps us to go there. It's an interesting thought from a a writer named John Eldridge. Some of you have maybe written, read some of John's stuff. I don't necessarily, don't just assume because I quote somebody that I agree with everything they say. Um, Sometimes I just find that they say things that help us to think. And sometimes guys have really great insights in one category and really poor insights in others. That's probably true throughout the hour of you listening to me. Some of that was okay. Some of that was really lame. Um, So some of these guys would be in the all right and lame category as well. But he has an interesting thought here. He says, we are desire. And it is the essence of the human soul, the secret of our existence. Absolutely nothing of human greatness is ever accomplished without it. Not a symphony has been written, a mountain climbed, an injustice fought, or a love sustained apart from desire. Desire fuels our search for the life we prize. I have a real simple way of saying that. You've heard me say it over and over again. People do what they want to do. That's how we live our lives. There is desire in us in all kinds of categories, but there is this internal imperative that motivates and moves us. And so I have to agree. I think there's nothing of greatness that you and I have ever heard of, nothing of significance, nothing that's been built or accomplished, no work of beauty was done without someone having a desire for it to happen. And the bigger the accomplishment, the bigger the desire, the stronger that, that hunger, that motivation to see this thing get done. But the question is, if people do what they want to do, where does the want come from? Where does this get inside of us, this dynamic of wanting Well, you know, words like appetite, this passage is going to use the word hunger, kind of are revealing. The word appetite is from a French word. It means to strive after, a long for. It means a fixed and strong desire, especially natural desire, a craving. You have those things inside of you that they're like cravings. You know when you get a craving for a certain food? It's like you just get weird. It can be... It can be late at night for me, and late at night for me usually is a, kind of a little bit of a routine. Finally, everybody's in bed, and for me it's a time to pray, but it's also a time for milk and cookies. And so if that's not available, you know, there, there can be some, I mean, it can be 11 o'clock at night, and you know, I'm not wanting to get in the car and drive to the store, but you know, if there's a craving strong enough in me, 
That's exactly what I do. I get in the car and I drive to the store because there's something in me that says, you must do this. You, know, you must have that particular cookie you're thinking of. So appetites are in us. They're cravings. They're strong desires. The word hunger is defined as an uneasy sensation occasioned normally by the want of food, a craving or desire for food, any strong, eager desire. I like that little phrase, though, about hunger. It's an uneasy sensation. When you get hungry, when your body gets hungry, there's something unpleasant about it, isn't there? There's an uneasiness to you. You can just be cruising through the day, and all of a sudden your body begins to send signals that sort of upset what's going on. There's a signal going on that says, you cannot continue to do what you're doing. And you, you try to ignore it, you know, but it comes back and it gets more intense. And there's something on the inside of you that's disrupting your world, isn't it? It's, it's saying, you will not continue. <laughs> you will be stopping to eat something. And it's uneasy. Well, I think it's very helpful for us to come in contact with the reality that every person lives with an indwelling uneasiness in them. Something in your life is going to go off, and it's, it's likened to hunger. It's that same sort of a thing, but it's, it's broader than that. It's in more categories of our life than that. It's going to go off on the inside of you, and it's going to be a sense of craving or a sense of desire, something that is motivating you towards something, and therefore you have to disrupt things, change things, and you're willing to do it. The desire is strong enough, you're willing to do that. But where does that come from? Anybody here find themselves, you know, you're just online shopping. If you're online, you know, you're going to, to look up appetite. You know, I need to get, I just need an upgrade on my appetite, you know. Honey, while you're at Walmart, could you pick me up like a six-pack of desire? You know, I just, I just don't have any desires for anything. Just pick me up a six-pack. They're already in us, aren't they? Everybody has them. You don't have to import them. You have to go out and find them. There's something in us that hungers for something. David Powelson is a rather thought-provoking. This, this, this one paragraph, Covenant Group Leaders, if you just wanted to scrap everything that you'll ever do for the rest of your lives and just always do this one paragraph, you will always have meaningful content in your discussions. Listen to this thought. He says, The simplest way to discover why a person does, says, thinks, or feels certain things is to ask, What do you want? What desires made him do that? What yearning led her to say that? What longings animate me when I follow that train of thoughts and fantasy? What did they fear when they felt so anxious? Abraham Maslow sensibly described matters this way. The original criterion of motivation and the one that is still used by all human beings is the subjective one. I am motivated when I feel desire or want or yearning or wish or lack. See, when you get in touch with, you you can get in touch with the whole realm of why, why do we sin? That's an easy theological question. Thank you to Adam and passing on. Why do we sin the way we do? Why do I have my sin patterns? You got yours. I've got mine. Why do you sin in your categories? Why do I sin in mine? Because people do what they want to do. Because something inside of me wants something in this moment. You and I interact and we have a conflict and and I respond a certain way. It's because I want something. 
Or if I go into panic mode and I'm full of fear, and in my fear I begin to respond to you in, in uh, impatience or irritation, it's because I'm, I'm fearful about something. I'm experiencing some sense of lack. There's this hunger in me that I'm afraid it's not going to get satisfied. And so therefore my relating to you or my handling a situation gets polluted by the fact that I'm hungry. I don't just mean food. I mean, a lot of us become kind of crotchety when we don't get food, right? That becomes a bad thing. Oh, he hasn't eaten in a while, you know. You can tell just by the way the guy's behaving. He, you know, just slide some food in front of him and, you know, he'll turn back into a normal human being. Where's this appetite? Let's put in your outline. Appetite is a hardwired feature of every human being. It's an internal compulsion that drives us with desire. An indwelling craving that reaches outside of ourselves to be satisfied. I think that's a very key in, ingredient to hunger. Hunger can't take care of itself. Hunger needs something outside of itself. Desire needs something outside of itself in order to be satisfied. So it's this vortex, if you will, that needs to go outside of itself to get something, pull it in here, to touch that thing, to sort of make it get satisfied. Stephen Arterburn, another guy like the other guy, says, The trouble is, appetites don't always work as they were intended. When they get out of control, the results range from uncomfortable to downright dangerous. Chronic disease. Right? Why, do, why do we have some of the medical problems that we have in this country? It's because we are a severely overweight country. It's because we don't eat well. It's because we have appetites for things that aren't good for us. And we eat it anyway. Right? So there's chronic disease. There's broken marriages. Because one partner had an appetite for sex that was inappropriate and wasn't managed and it became dangerous and it ended up destroying their marriage. Ruined careers. You know, people who have an appetite for success at such a rate that they can't work with people. That they're, that they're so consumed and controlled by their own agenda to achieve and accomplish that they climb up a ladder a little bit, but they're, they're destructive people. Eventually, some employers, you know, I want you working here because you're so ambitious for you that you do it at the expense of others. Or your ambitions have brought you in the realm of being illegal. You so much want to achieve things that you're doing things that are illegal. And you're destroying your ability to, to work and function in a workplace. Because there's an appetite in you. Spiritual fumbling or complete self-destruction. How many of us know people whose lives, I mean, just had, had fairly normal components to it, and then something like drugs came on the scene. And an appetite for, you know, drugs is a multi-headed monster. You know, when you're young, for me, drugs when I was young was just, it was just partying. It was just getting high. It was a thrill mechanism. But you can get later on in your life and it becomes a comfort mechanism and an escape mechanism. It kind of has multiple heads. So you just kind of can't cut the head off of a drug problem too easily. Sometimes a lot of addictive sort of behaviors sort of have those components in them. Gambling, it's both thrilling and it's distracting. And, but how many people do you know who when that appetite for that aspect that came through drugs or alcohol or through gambling, 
that when it became large enough, it destroyed someone's life. All of a sudden, they can't, they can't hold a job. They're unpredictable. They lie. You can't trust them. The people that they've been known to be all these years, you don't know who they are anymore. And they're living right in your midst. Well, what happened to them? Well, there was an appetite in them that got way too big and got way too controlling. You know, we, we call that today, the fancy word for that today is addiction. It's in all those categories. And addiction is just a very, very strong craving. Very strong desire that isn't being managed. And there's a need in a person's life. It's not being met biblically. It's being met in a non-biblical way. That's ending up becoming destructive in their lives. So when we come to this passage, I want you to look here at John chapter 6 with me. When we come to this passage, we find Jesus talking about something that is so incredibly relevant to the world that we live in. Because everybody wakes up. Everybody woke up this morning. You're going to live your life today having to manage the appetites that are in your life. In many, many categories. And what Jesus gives us today is the solution. He gives us the piece of the puzzle that fits the realm of our appetites. And it's interesting here, this, this crowd that we're about to read about. You know, Remember the context of John chapter 6? It's just been the great miracle where Jesus fed the 5,000 men that were gathered there and all the folks that were with them and he multiplied the loaves and the fishes and fed all this multitude. And the evening comes and he gets in the boat and he crosses the, the lake. Well, the next day, this crowd has come to find him the next day. And they're pursuing more food, right? The hunger is going off inside of them. And what's obvious when Jesus interacts with them is they seem to have the same problem that the woman at the well had about identifying the need in their own life. They are clueless about what really drives them. Remember, woman at the well, she was clueless as well. She comes to the well She's seeking to get water. It's the time of the day when nobody else is there. She's got all she's a complicated woman with a lot of issues going on in her life. And she meets Jesus, and when Jesus begins to interact with her and tells her about him having this living water that he could give to her. And immediately she goes, That sounds great. Now, that way I won't be thirsty anymore and I won't have to carry some water jar and come here to get water. That'd be great. Now is is she hearing what he's saying? She's not hearing what he's saying. She, she has got her antenna raised into the, the natural realms of life. All she knows is, I've got to carry this heavy water pot up this hill to this place. I've got to do this every day. I try to avoid all the women in the city because that's an uncomfortable scene when they're here. And it would be great. If you could give me water like that, I wouldn't have to sweat water, carry the pot, come up here. And I'd be, I wouldn't be thirsty, so I wouldn't have to. That would be great. Now, there's a person totally in touch with a natural component of their life. Well, same thing for this crowd, too. When Jesus interacts with them, they are a crowd in touch with the natural component of their life. Now, let's not find fault with them too quickly. Because it's a struggle for us to realize there's more to our lives than what we eat and drink and the need that we can experience in this body, this temporary stuff that's going on around us, paying a bill. There's deeper things in life. That God longs to get his word into, to touch us. Let's start reading here in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, 
that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Let me just stop along the way here. We're going to eventually get all the way to verse 35, but I'm just going to stop and interact with some of these thoughts for a moment. Here's this crowd. They've gone to great trouble to cross the lake. Right? And I don't assume the Bible is trying to say that when it says the crowd, there was a crowd that got fed and then there was a crowd that crossed the lake. I don't assume that it was the 5,000 plus people that all found boats and crossed the lake. So you're talk, probably talking about a greatly reduced crowd. But they've gone to a lot of trouble. They've gotten in boats. You know, I don't think they had inflatable rafts and a backpack. and just, okay, and they rowed across. They had to come up with boats. They had to borrow boats. They had to talk to people. And they crossed the lake to go find Jesus wherever he is. And when they get to him, they are, Jesus said, you, you seek me. Here's the people who are seeking Jesus. That's a good thing, isn't it? A good thing to seek Jesus. Well, Jesus kind of interacts with them in a strange way. He's not, he's not real glad. You are seeking me, not because you saw signs. In other words, signs that I was the Messiah. I mean, there's, a, there's a lot of Messiah-ish stuff in this passage. You know, the, them calling forth in a moment the manna that Moses provided. There, there's some Messiah-ish language taking place in this. Jesus has done a miracle. It's a sign revealing who he is. Remember we, when we studied the book of John, these things, many more things that Jesus do, but these things they recorded that you may believe. These were signs that people, if they looked at them, they would help them to realize he's the Messiah. So they saw this sign, and they didn't come to Jesus saying, you're the Messiah. With, with living word that I need in my soul. Jesus knows that. That's not why you're here. You're seeking me, but for the wrong motives and interest. You're not seeking me for the right reasons. Now, that's an interesting thought. One I think that the church today could do well to consider. You know, the question, why, why are you seeking Jesus? And what are you really after? You know, watch me, the church becomes a community, it's a group of people, we come together. But you know, you've got, you got a lot of reasons that you could be here. You know, it may not be just because I, I have a heart to worship God and He is my life. I'm drawn to Him. It may not be that at all. You may just be lonely. You find a place here where people will, they're nice, they care about you, they give you activities, there's stuff to do. You can go hang out with this group, and they've got a covenant group thing going on over here, and there's an outreach activity, and you just kind of be around people. Or maybe you're looking, for, looking to get married. That's for, you know, why are you seeking? Why are you looking to be around Jesus? Well, you know, the type of person I'd like to marry you know, would probably be like a church person, and that's kind of that's just an area of emptiness in me. I have an appetite, desire to be married, strong. It's, it's an uneasy feeling that's in me, and I'm pursuing that. You could be here. For those reasons, you can seek Jesus Christ for a lot of earthly 
bound reasons. And that's what these guys were doing. They had an interest in the Son of God, but not as the Son of God, being the Son of God to them. They just ate something. And it touched their life a certain way. And they'd like that again. See, they're more in touch with their natural appetite for food than they are with the fact that this is Jesus, the Son of God, who can touch your life in the depths of ways that you desperately need him to. They weren't really in touch with that reality. You remember this very same writer. If you, if you trace out the rest of John chapter 6, which we will do, it's almost, this is an interesting chapter because you have this great crowd. You have this big crowd of people that have chosen to follow Jesus. And we get a little hint here that they've chosen to follow him for the wrong reasons. But yet, when you saw Jesus move from place to place, a big crowd was going with him. Right? So, you know, you can be tempted to believe that where there's a crowd of people following Jesus, they're Jesus followers, they're Christians. Look at the big crowd of Christians. But by the time you get to the end of chapter 6... Jesus is going to have thinned the crowd out tremendously. Jesus, I don't think Jesus understood how to be seeker sensitive. I really think that he was, he just didn't get it. Here you have Jesus, you got a crowd. Isn't that what you want? Don't you? I mean, churches want crowds, for goodness sake. Let's figure out ways just to gather people. Well, Jesus, you've gathered all these people, and they come, they go all the trouble of getting in boats and coming to find you, and the first thing you say is something combative to them. You didn't seek me because you saw a sign. Your bellies were full. Huh. That's real sensitive. And then he's going to come back later on. This whole thing just sort of, it just kind of progresses. As he begins to relate more and more, he talks about his flesh and his blood and eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And this crowd starts going from, wow, let's go find Jesus to, whoa, 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 this dude's weird. That is crazy. What on earth? What is this guy talking about? Who does he think he is? And when you get to the end of the chapter, they all start leaving. So much so that he, it looks like he almost gets down to the twelve. And he turns to them and he says, you guys want to go too? I mean, he's thinned this group out. And the very same gospel writer John here is going to write in First John. They went out from among us because they never were of us. And that's an interesting revelation. And I don't know in First John whether he's specifically referring to this incident in these passages But it's very likely that throughout the discourse of Jesus walking amongst people and touching their lives and doing incredible things and healing people and compassion and care and feeding them and performing miracles, that people found all kinds of natural reasons to be drawn to Jesus. They were in touch with their natural appetites. And he was doing some stuff that would touch that. And so they wanted to be around that. But they never were really putting their faith in Jesus Christ They never were really following him as the son of God who would meet the depths of their heart's need. They were just there kind of eating the bread that fell off the table, so to speak. Remember that this can happen. I mean, Danny had shared a couple of weeks ago the word about the soils. Remember, the, the seed of the word of God can be sown in someone's heart and it can be this shallow, thin soil. And immediately there springs up this life. Oh, I've heard something. Oh, that's so affected me. And then it just withers and goes away. And there's no fruit that gets produced from that. Or the person whose life is characterized by thorns and weeds are growing and choking out. And the word comes, but growth actually begins to occur. And then it's not growth anymore. Well, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing to gather people together under the banner of Christianity. 
Yeah. Jesus had crowds. Churches have crowds. But are they all following for the right reason? I put in your outline there some symptoms of earthbound motives in seeking Christ. Things like inconsistency. Now you need to weigh your own life here because every one of us battles with inconsistency. But when you look at all these, uh, these would be concerning symptoms of having the wrong reasons in following Christ. You know, inconsistencies where there's, there always seems to be other things that bump your Christianity out of your life. You, know, you have these great intentions, or maybe sometimes you don't have great intentions, but you want to read the Bible and you want to pray and be a part of church. But you know, there's just always stuff in your life that comes along and just kind of bumps that stuff out of the way. And you just become inconsistent all over the place in your walk and how you pursue God. You're one of those people, perhaps, that it just sort of drops out. Right? You know, there'll be people in the church that that come, be involved, you know, for two, three, four months stretch, and then be gone for like six months, just gone. Just not anywhere. Pursuing God. And then, you know, then they come back and they show up and there's three or four months that they're involved and there's some interest and then they're just gone again. You know, if that's the kind of thing that's in your heart, you might want to ask, what motivates you to be there in the first place? Because whatever it is, that itch of yours isn't getting scratched after two or three months. Your primary interest isn't in the Son of God. It's in something else. And when that kind of wanes, you wane. Kind of just go away. That limited engagement and involvement. You know, I'll use Lauren as an example. But you know, when you get saved, the church becomes family, context of relationships, and that to which we are called to be a part of. See, you know, the church is just not a waiting room for Jesus. The church is building the kingdom of God. So it's, it's sort of like you, you get employed, you begin to serve. Your, your life takes on characteristics of being in the kingdom of God. And so, you know, for one who's got this real limited engagement and involvement thing going on, you know, they, they come to Christ, but, you know, there's a lot of aspects of Christianity that they just never develop an interest in. You know, we do things like covenant groups. Not because we're trying to be novel, not because we think, you know, for a church to, to really retain its membership, you know, this, this is not like building a golf course at a country club. You know, we need to build a golf course if we want to keep members. You know, we need to have covenant groups because people need to make friends. And if you don't create little groups for them to do that, they'll just go to another church. That's not the way we do any of that. We do it because in a room like this, you can't express and experience biblical fellowship. So we say, you know, for biblical fellowship to happen, you have to always try and get smaller and smaller and smaller, smaller groups. And within those groups, two or three. So that biblical fellowship takes place <clears throat> because that's what we're called to do. It's the life we're called to live. It's to express the life of Christ to one another, to receive and give encouragement, to allow the Spirit of God to operate in us and through us and from others into our lives. Well, what do you do when you're supposedly following Christ, but you don't have any interest in that? <clears throat> Really? Well, then, what's your motive for following Christ, then? You don't, you don't have a burden, you know, for instance, for evangelism. You know, Alpha is this thing that you hear a lot about, but, you know, never involved. Don't seek to serve there. Don't want to step up and say, you know, I, you know some, there will be folks in a church. I'm not sure, I'm not thinking of anybody in particular for us. But there will be folks in churches who, you know, at work... They're, they're called on to be these communicators. They can, they can get, 
groups, you know, their supervisors who have a group of people that they're responsible for and they, they motivate them, they look at their work, they interact with them. But yet, if you were to ask that same guy to lead an alpha table, he'd all of a sudden act like, oh, oh, oh I don't know, you know, I don't know if I could do that. What do you mean? You do that all the time at work. You have the skills to do that. But yet, you know, it's kind of, well, you know, I don't know. But where, where, why, why do you follow Christ? See, Jesus is, is into people being saved. If you get around him and you get to know him, now listen, if you're just looking for some crumb falling out of his hand, well, you know, I'm interested in that thing. And he does that a lot, but every once in a while he does this cool little trick over here and I'm just waiting for him to do that one again. Because that's what I like. I see, I'm real selective. You know, the worship thing, I just kind of wait for Matt to be done because, you know, I just kind of, I kind of like the thought thing going on. I'll come in for the preaching stuff, you know, because I kind of like the, you know, traffic with some thoughts. I kind of debate with the guy speaking in my own head. That's kind of, that's kind of me. You know, I'm not kind of not into the worship thing, so I just kind of don't do that. You know, why are you following Christ? You have a lot of earthbound motives for why you're hanging around Jesus. And you might want to be very careful to assess how did this happen. You may, maybe, you don't, maybe you don't tithe. That don't mess with your world, huh? Well, you know, I've got my church world and I've got my financial world. Listen, if those two worlds haven't become one world, uh, then, then you have something severely wrong with why you're following Christ. You, a passion to build the kingdom of God should touch everything about who you are. Yet, do you have a prayer life? A passion to build of the kingdom of God will create a prayer life in your life. Well, I kind of don't do the prayer. See, if you're selective in what you give your life to, I think it raises good questions for you to wonder. Why do I follow Christ? Is it because I like to be fed? When he does that particular thing, I like that aspect of Christianity. So I just kind of hang around. I kind of put up with a lot of the other stuff because I like that particular dynamic of Christianity. Another symptom of earthbound motives would be kind of a dual lifestyle. You know, you kind of got your, kind of got your Christian personality in your world. And you speak the lingo and the buzzwords, and you don't curse when you're around these guys. But you get around this group over here, you look just like them, sound just like them, fit in just like them. You have as much loyalties to what they do as you ever have had. You speak about those aspects of life with as much vehemence, and but it's almost like these two worlds don't collide for you. Well, that, that would be symptomatic, that you, you are after something natural and earthbound in your life. You have an appetite there. Maybe another symptom would be being comfortable with sin rather than convicted of sin. You know, comfortable with sin. You know, those categories, you know, we can all kind of go off a checklist and say, all right, let me just get rid of these really loud sins. But, you know, pride and arrogance... Coexisting in the heart of somebody who's standing before the greatness of God. Well, I don't even notice that. Oh, really? Really? Why, why does that not get noticed? Why do you not get convicted about that? I mean, in the church world, there are, there are some folks in the church world that you just would be amazed to really be convinced that they're Christians because the, the level of arrogance and self-promotion is... So, well, I don't understand how you get around the God who is great and you, you're still trying to be great. You're still trying to get people to see your greatness. Have you really seen the greatness of God? See, when, when my eyes see the greatness of God, I, I want to I get away from it in a certain way. I, I kind of want to get you to look at that and not at me. 
And if you're enamored with me, and I'm wanting you to be enamored with me, then I question how much I've seen the greatness of God. I've seen the greatness of God, I guarantee you I'm not impressed with my greatness. You are wasting your time looking at me. I want you to see him. But I'm not convicted by that. I'm comfortable sort of living with these categories of my life. Then I would question, why, why am I following Christ? What am I really after? What's my motive? In your outline it says, these things... Give away that Christ is not our treasure, but rather a means to getting our treasure. Oh, be very careful. Listen, there, there are people who the means to them getting their treasure is to be part of a drug culture, to live in the inner city, and to traffic in illegal drugs. That, that's their means of getting what they're after. Now, there's a group of us in this room right here who aren't drawn to that world. We all live in the suburbs. That doesn't hold any appeal to us. But nice people who dress nice, have meals together, do stuff, make friends, laugh. I, I could be interested in that. See, and then the church becomes a means. I just want to get something. I have a hunger, I have an appetite for a certain aspect of life, and the church becomes a means. Christ becomes a means of getting that. Look at David Paulson here. He says, what makes you tick? What sun does your planet revolve around? What food sustains your life? What really matters to you? This is a great question. What do you organize your life around? Right, you want to know my opinion of the big three? Here would be the big three things that people organize their life around. As they traffic through life, the first one would be their school. They grow up, they go to school. And school is such a dominant feature on the landscape of their life, they organize their life around school. Friendships, activities, projects that are due, tests, being a student, your life gets organized around school. You move from that into the work world and your life gets organized around work. Where you live, who you hang out, how you spend most of your time, how you spend your energies, what you want to be excellent at. And then the third thing people organize their life around is their family. Now, none of these, none of these things are wrong. But quite honestly, none of them are designed to be the center of the universe for you either. Even your family is not intended to be what your life is organized around. That might be a hard one for some folks. See, my life is to be organized around Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. Everything else about who I am circles that space. So it's an interesting question to think. What do you organize your life around? To be ruled, he says, say by deep thirst for intimacy, achievement, respect, health, or wealth does not define these as legitimate unproblematic desires. They function perversely, placing ourselves at the center of the universe. We are meant to long supremely for the Lord himself. That's what hunger is intended to be spent on. In our idolatry, we make gifts out to be supreme gods and make the giver into the errand boy of our desires. And unfortunately, say this Carefully, unfortunately, too much of the Christian message has turned into that. Almost like you get introduced to Christ by watching some guy on TV introduce you to the errand boy. Who gets you your stuff? You want to be this in life? Well, you're in the right place. You want to be this? You just trust God for this. You want to eat? 
You've got a God who feeds your belly. Come on. This is how you pray to Him. This is how you ask Him for stuff. He wants to feed you. He wants you to be fat. Come on. Follow this God. That's what's being advertised by too many folks. So you kind of get a strange view of Christianity. I appreciate the other day when we were at the conference and John Piper was speaking, he was... I don't know if he was on the spot developing an illustration because the wheels came off of it while he was doing it. But the first part of it was really good. He talked about the fact that for too many folks, Jesus Christ is a ticket. It's a ticket to get something else. I don't know how you feel about a ticket. But, you know, he made the point, what do you do with a ticket once you get in the movie? You throw it away. Because a ticket was just a means of you getting something else that was really what you were after. I wonder, listen, you can dress that ticket up thing to where it's a ticket to get married. It's a ticket to a good life. It's a ticket to a healthy body. Any of these things wrong? No, they're not wrong. not wrong for you to want to have children. See, what becomes wrong is when Jesus becomes a ticket. That's what's wrong. Is it wrong for God to provide those things? Absolutely not. He does provide those things. It's wrong when he becomes a ticket. It's wrong when the God who is supposed to be the end of our life becomes the means of us getting something else that we push to the end. We want that, and Jesus will help us get it. Well, now he's a ticket. I can't think of a greater insult to God to make him finish second to something else. Matter of fact, make him discardable in the practical aspects of our lives. Because really, Jesus, what I'm most after is not you... And you can tell by my misery, my misery, my self-absorption, my lack of contentment. I'm not most after you. See, because I already got you, Jesus. But I'm not real happy with my life because I really wanted something else. Thanks for coming along. But I wanted something else in my life. Well, that's, that's kind of where this crowd is. This crowd sees Jesus as a ticket to a meal. He's a meal ticket. And Jesus knows that. Go back to verse 26. <clears throat> he answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Put in your outline. You are, you are seeking me. He says, not because, but he goes back to this thought. You are seeking me. Because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, this is the next day, and you're still not satisfied. It's the next day. See, we ate our fill of the loaves, but we need to eat again. That was yesterday. You did that for us yesterday. We were content yesterday. We all sat down. You had the disciples go out. You broke up food. We ate. But it's the next day. We need to eat again. See, that food, that food's done satisfying us. And now we're not satisfied again. And so we need to eat again. Jesus says, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures. Right? Two different effects that whatever it is that we eat produce on us. One is temporary and perishes. The other is enduring. See, depending on what you're eating is dependent on the effect that it's going to have in satisfying my soul. Whether it's just going to perish and the next day... It's going to be gone. Right? In your outline there, I think I put the expansive menu of food that perishes. It's like when you get up in the morning and you face life, it's almost like walking into a fine restaurant. The host or hostess meets you there and seats you at a table and there's background music and a menu is opened. 
They begin to open up the menu. Today, we have a special today. They begin to advertise to you and they describe what you can eat. And, you know, it may, it may actually be food, right? I mean, real food. You know, for some, food is much more than eating just to sustain life, right? You know what I mean? Are you one of those guys? For some, food is, is it's, a, it's comfort. You know, it's comfort food. They even have names for stuff now. It's comfort food. You know, you just, you just want just to sit down and eat because, it, I don't know, it just it brings a sense. It's like background music comes on. It's like the air freshener comes on and air conditioning kicks into the room. I'm just eating. And I feel a different sense of who I am. <laughs> or it may just be taste bud indulgence. Right? Some of us just eat. I don't know how comforting food is for me, but I just like the way it tastes. So I'm all over the food thing for the purpose of there's just pleasure going on, a little party going on in my mouth when food is being, the right food is being eaten. So for me, I can, you know, I can just pursue the pleasure of that. But you know, the interesting thing about pursuing the, the pleasure of food is in a few hours, you're going to want it again. Right? The appetite is still there. Tomorrow, you will no longer be satisfied by yesterday's food. You're going to want it again. You know, and there's other categories that advertise that they can satisfy our hungers. Sex. It's everywhere in our culture. It's advertised everywhere. It's in the way people dress. It's on billboards. It's in all the uh, TV shows. It, it's just rampant throughout our society. And it's engendering in people an appetite for more sexual content. And even if you're not somebody who is, is going to become an adulterer or a fornicator, uh, there's going to be images. Your mind just wants to look at it. Right? Even if you're not going to do too much more than that. There's an appetite. The pornography industry. Have you ever seen statistical comparisons? You know, like when somebody sits down and says, the, the pornography industry makes more money than NASCAR, football, basketball, and baseball combined. You sit back and you realize, wow, I think McDonald's doesn't put a patch on how much money the porn industry makes. It is an incredibly rampant society that's been affected by pornographic thinking. Now, how deceptive is this? Because, see, there's a, there, there begins to be a building appetite inside one to see that. I mean, I've watched people be controlled by pornography. They become deceptive. They, they move their life a certain way. They become shadowy. There's aspects of their life that they just protect this time that no one knows exactly how it's being used. They become a different person. They get in their boats and cross the lake. They go to great troubles to satisfy this appetite. But if you've ever had a struggle in that area, how many of you know that there's never a last glimpse? How many of you know? Have you ever told yourself this just one more time? As though just that one more time was going to finally satisfy you? You finally, the appetite would be done? No, because that's food that perishes. And you take it in one more time, and you're going to be hungry for it again a little while later. So never think you can, you can give yourself to those kinds of foods and not become enslaved to them. Because the appetite never... There is an appetite in you. But it'll never get satisfied by that. Things like approval and acceptance and notoriety and significance. What we do to people in our lives because we have a hunger and a craving for people to think of us a certain way. 
for people to approve of us. We want to just we want to get on the list. We have a peer group that we want to be on their list. We want to be respected in that peer group. We want our spouse to approve of us a certain way. And we have a hunger and an appetite. Remember, that hunger is an internal uneasiness. It's driving us to behave a certain way, to look at things a certain way. And when that craving, like a hungry craving, doesn't get satisfied, when your spouse doesn't approve of you enough, you're going to be a real fun person to live with. I'm serious. You, it, it's a craving, it's a hunger for something that that person's not meeting enough of. And you're difficult now. Fearful, driven, contentious. Because we labor for food that perishes. Look in verse 28. Jesus told them, don't labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures. Verse 28, he says, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we do to be doing the works of God? That is a very interesting question. Jesus just said labor. He said work for the food that endures. Oh, okay. Well, what must we do? What do, what do we need to do, Jesus? It's an interesting thing what man does in the realm of religion. This, is a, this is, to me, is such a revealing question. Because it, it reveals where man goes as soon as there's any activity. We want our activity... To count before God in a way that God's not interested in actually in it actually counting. We want to become workers before God in a way. And this is interesting in this realm of religion that's here, because Jesus actually is going to insert that you do have some responsibility here. Look in verse twenty nine. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's it. Remember the only thing that God looks for. It's not our level of religion. It's not our level of morality. It's not us being good enough long enough. It's not us participating in some religious group long enough or in a certain way that God then turns and says, hey, we're good. God is looking for faith. He's just looking for you to believe, to truly believe in who he is. That's it. Listen, isn't that so different? Listen, that's different, by the way, than every religion in the world. Islam's not just looking for you to believe. It's looking for you to perform. Buddhism's not looking for you to believe. It's looking for you to perform. Cultural Christianity is not just looking for you to believe. It's looking for you to perform. It's looking for you to go through certain aspects of living your life this way, having been a part of this sacrament, having done this activity... And, and now, you're right before God. Jesus says, that he, you want to know what the work is? Work is believe. That's what the work is. Just receive. Just by faith, receive the grace of God in your life. Put your faith in the grace of God. Like Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift. What's the work? The work is here. Receive. It's receive the grace of God. For by grace you have been saved. Through what? Through faith. And this is not of yourselves. So be really careful that, that we're not laboring before God in a way that God never intended us to labor before Him. 
tended to receive by faith. Verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? It's an interesting thought here I put in there from J.C. Rowell. He says, this is the common language of many unconverted hearts. They want to see first and then to believe. But this is inverting God's order. Faith must come first and sight will follow. That's a very interesting thing. Because listen, you know, I, I know that it's almost as though there's something in us that wants to be served up enough information to us. And so we crave more and more and more information. Like, like we have in us this capacity and ability to weigh it in the scales and then say, oh, oh, now that I see, I'll believe. Well, what that is uninformed about is the fact that I am blind spiritually. So it's almost as though you'd be saying, you know, God could respond to this. I want to see, I want to see. And God could kind of say, okay, there it is. There what is. It's all around you. I don't see it. <laughs> exactly you don't see it. Because you're blind. This is the mystery of, of God working into the death of humanity, into the spiritual blindness of humanity. For us to think that, oh no, I will weigh God in the scales and then I will make a decision of faith. Oh, Wow, I hate to break the news to you, but it's sort of an arrogant posture. You can't weigh God in the scales, for one thing. The scales aren't big enough. And our mind can never take in all of who God is and what he's done. To come to God, you just have to come by faith. Now, I'll tell you this. Uh, and I was young when I came to the Lord. I was a teenager. So I didn't have enough smarts in me to argue a whole lot about a whole lot. But I sure saw a whole lot after I believed. Man, when I when I came to Christ in 1979 by faith, all of a sudden, the Bible was screaming at me. Everywhere! I was seeing stuff all over. It's like, wow, the Bible says that. Oh my goodness! I, mean, I want to read more. Well, what happened? Did I see and then I believed? No, I believed. <clears throat> and then I saw. And there's aspects of God that, that you don't get to see first and then get to believe. He calls this crowd to faith. He says, come, believe. Let's read the rest of this. <clears throat> Verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. That stuff that was, the, you know, the frosted flakes all over the ground, that wasn't the true bread, guys. Okay, I'm glad you thought that was really cool. But it was just like a little road sign. Many of us know that the, 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 the Jews in the New Testament seem to have a problem falling in love with road signs. It's like, yeah, but there was a road sign. You got another road sign? We want to see another road sign. And they actually had created a belief in them that when the Messiah came back, he would duplicate this miracle. And that there would be manna from heaven given again. Because, you know, there is this implication that that's what God was going to do. He was going to feed the bread of heaven into people's lives. That's what the Old Testament was pointing to. But Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. My father, and that's how he says this, he didn't say my father gave you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the bread from heaven. Right now, right here, I'm standing here talking to you. My father gives you the bread from heaven, the true bread. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
they said to him, this, is, this sounds like the woman at the well, huh? Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. J.C. Ryle says, the bread of life means that spiritual bread which conveys life to the soul. That living bread which does not merely feed the body like common bread, but supplies eternal sustenance and nourishment to the eternal soul. See, this is, this is the thing that the food that perishes feeds an aspect of us that perishes. It feeds that natural component of our lives. And when we become too fleshly, that's the thing where we live in those appetites. But, you know, the, the hunger that's making our lives uneasy, it's a hunger for the bread of life. That's what it's after. And you can try all the other, you know, try the sex, try the drugs, try whatever it is that you're going to try. But see, it can never do what the bread of life does. can feed the real hunger that's in us. Jesus said, interestingly though, that the bread of, of life is he. It's, it's not it. The bread of life is a person. It's not a thing. It's not an accomplishment. It's not an achievement. It's not a level of success. It's not a certain level of income. It's not enough people liking you. It's not health in your body. It's not a thing. The bread of life is a person. It is feasting on the person of Jesus Christ that satisfies my soul. Let me look at these, a couple of these passages with you. Look in your outline. Listen to, listen to how this sounds. These are people feasting. Psalm 27.4 One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You may not realize this, but that uneasy feeling on the inside of you, what it is longing to do, it is craving, yearning, longing, hungering to gaze upon the, the glory of God. Remember Moses, at the, towards the end of his life, he's lived this incredible life. He has seen the fireworks of activity in his life. He's, he's been at the pinnacle of success in Egypt. He's wandered in the wilderness. He's come and seen the rescuing of God's people. And then he gets with God one day. Remember one of his last requests later in his life? He says, Lord... Show me your glory. See, there was a hunger in his heart that was for, for tasting and seeing the glory of God. And, and we, we see the glory of God through the eyes of faith. It's almost as though for a Christian there is a, a sense, a faith sense in us. In the same way that there's a, a sense of hunger and pleasure in when, you know, when our eyes look and see a beautiful sunset. Right? There's something that touches us through that in there. There's some aspect of us that just beholds beauty and appreciates it. Or someone turns on a symphony or music travels through our ears and it, it produces a sense of pleasure. An ocean breeze just blowing across your body. It can just take you to another place, can it? There's an experience there. Well, this is like that. Only it's not at a fleshly level. It's at a spiritual level. 
that my soul longs to take in God that way. Paul said it in Philippians. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Experientially knowing him is what Paul was talking about. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Who? Christ. Not a thing. I've counted everything else as loss. I've been willing to part with all the other perishable foods in my life that I may have the food that endures. I want that one thing. I want Christ. I want the bread of life. Psalm 73. I saw my... I frequently come back to this psalm. It says, Nevertheless... I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So this is John chapter 6. I'm the bread of life. You guys got in boats, came over here because something touched you in the natural. Your soul longs for a whole lot more than that. You're not just looking for bread. Man doesn't live by bread alone. He lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He lives by God's very life. What your soul is longing for, those hunger pains, that, that uneasiness on the inside of you that keeps disrupting your daily existence. The reason why that's there is because your soul longs for the bread of life. Now listen, there are some here this morning who who may be in a place where you've never experienced Christ this way. You may be like the crowd, going along with Jesus, going along with religion because you like some things about it, but you've never experienced, your soul is still starving. You don't know Christ this way. I want to give you an opportunity in just a moment. And you can. You can know. And this crowd had an opportunity to put their faith in Christ, to believe in Him. They had the opportunity to do it. And you have the opportunity right now to do it. Sadly, there may be some here who have known Christ, but yet find yourself working and laboring for the food that perishes. You know Jesus, but man, there are categories of your life where you have an appetite in that category that is becoming a controlling aspect of who you are. Stealing your joy, lack of contentment. That, you know, on the inside of you, there's an uneasiness that wants to reach outside of you to grab something, to get something to work in here to make me feel like I'm fulfilled in my life. See, you, know, you might think this through. I put in here just this comparison between needy people versus satisfied people. I don't know where you find yourself in that. You find yourself a needy person, you know, just frequently in need. Something up there needs to fix. Something that's not right on the inside. You, you frequently feel like there's something not working right on the inside. One lives in fear. When I lose my life, that person doesn't respond. If I, don't, if I don't marry that person, if I don't make that money, if I lose this job, I'm, you, you live in fear when you're a needy person. The other lives in peace. The bread of life has satisfied my soul. 
a sense of peace and satisfaction about my life. One lives to get, and the other lives to give. One is self-protecting. The other is self-sacrificing. One is contentious, fearful, complaining, manipulative. You a manipulative person? Manipulation is like a desire on steroids. It's like, I want something so bad, I will twist you in the wind in order to get it. And, and eventually I'll learn to be skillful at it so you won't quite realize I just did it. That's a good manipulator. But that's a contentious person. They're not at peace. Most people who are manipulators, you're not at peace with people. And whether you know it or not, they're not at peace with you. A needy person is a contentious person, whereas a satisfied person is a content person. See the pictures in my mind. Are you living your life from the inside out or the outside in? Oh, I'm so empty and I so need. I've got to get this. That's got to go right. I've got to get this in my life. I'm so desperate. You know, it's the difference between being a vacuum and being a faucet. Vacuum goes around trying to constantly trying to suck life out of every situation, every person, every dollar bill. Just trying to, just trying to get life in me, man. You know what I'm talking about? Whereas a faucet, when you turn a faucet on, life comes out of a faucet. Because I've eaten the bread of life. Oh, my soul is satisfied with God. And out of my life now comes rivers of living water. I don't hunger and thirst like that anymore. I, I find my satisfaction in the bread of life. Lord, help us this morning. Help us that your word, that is a living word, would find its living reality in our own hearts. Lord, open our lives right now to the ministry of truth. Lord, because we all came here today, every one of us, one thing we have in common is we want stuff. We want our lives to be a certain way. We want something. We are full of hunger and appetite. If you're here this morning and what I've described about knowing Jesus as the bread of life, knowing Him in your own heart, it's not something that's familiar to you. It's, you don't recall that that's been a reality that you've experienced. Well, today you stand in a place where Jesus says He wants to be the bread of life for you. He wants you to open your heart. He invites, he invites us to come and believe. He says, whoever comes to me shall no longer hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. God, how can you fix the empty hunger in my own heart? Well, this morning, if you want Christ, not just some gadget that he has, but you want him, he's the bread of life. You want to relate to Him. You want a relationship with the Son of God. Then come to Him this morning. Come right now and put your faith in Him. Take your ability to believe and give it to God. Say, Jesus Christ, this morning, I believe in who you are. Not just in things that you did upon earth, but I believe in who you are, Son of God. Come to save me from sin and to forgive me. I put my faith in you. I believe in you. I take in the bread of life. Open your heart right now. Just tell the Lord that. Just you and the Lord. Tell the Lord.
Lord, come into my life. I need you. I need you. Don't just, I don't just need you to get something for me. I'm not inviting you in to be my ticket. To get something that I've had a goal to have so long in my life. Jesus, I know I need you. And I don't even fully understand what that means. But I'm coming by faith. And I'm trusting that you'll help me to see what I'm believing. Ask the Lord to do that right now in your own heart. And he'll do that this morning. He will come into your life. Begin to satisfy the very depths of your soul. But I pray for every person that's here this morning who's, who's maybe been around you the way this crowd was around you. Lord, at the end of this chapter, many in this crowd are going away. Because they really weren't trusting you. and They really weren't following you for who you were. Lord, I pray this morning that, that you would call men and women to yourself that don't know you. Would you give them the grace to come to receive the one who is life, to receive life. Oh God, give life this morning into the depths of hearts that are searching, longing, satisfy souls here this morning, Lord. Now for some of you here, I believe the Lord wants to to give some grace to you to apply this. I don't, I don't really know specifically too many categories, but a couple that are coming to mind. That there are some of you here that you are having the hardest time in relationships. Marriage relationships. Friendship relationships. I believe the Lord just wants to show you that some of the reason why you're having these problems is because you hunger for something in that relationship that's actually destroying the relationship. You so desperately want people to treat you a certain way, to respect you a certain way, to approve of you a certain way. You have this hunger and desire. You're driving your husband or your wife nuts. Because they can never do enough. They can never satisfy the longings that are in your heart. And when they try, you acknowledge what you overlook because you're, you're more in touch with the uneasy hunger in you than anything they're doing. Listen, God wants to bless your marriage and bless your relationships by getting you to get hunger met by Him. Go to Christ this morning. Stop asking people to be more than they can be for you. Maybe some here you're laboring and trapped in some issue of a lust or desire or the pornography that I mentioned earlier. Listen, you understand there's a hunger inside of you and you're misled to believe that that hunger is a hunger for pornography. The hunger of your soul is not looking to be satisfied by sex. It's looking to be satisfied by the living God. It's looking for you to have a heart that says, One thing have I desired, that will I seek after. Not to gaze upon the image of pornography but to gaze upon the beauty of God. Oh, your soul longs to take in beauty. It's just not the one you're staring at on that computer screen. Your soul's longing to take in the beauty of God and to be satisfied. And when you eat of that bread of life, you're going to find great ease in resisting the temptation to look at another image on that screen. Or wherever your children are this morning, whatever issues that they are struggling with. Spirit of God, would you find them this morning? Lord, what wonderful news this is to my soul to know that 
there are longings inside of me. Lord, there are longings for you. And you alone can satisfy them. God, this morning I turn my attention, Lord, in, in humble repentance from things that I have substituted for you. Oh God, this morning we repent of making you into a ticket. God, that we've wanted something else besides you and you have become a means of us getting it. We've prayed for things and longed for things because we've longed for those things to satisfy our souls. All along, the God we're praying to, we've been telling you we're not content with you. We want something else and we want you to help us get it. God, we repent of those kinds of prayers. Lord, you, you are my heart's desire, Lord. You are what my soul longs for. You are the bread that satisfies the hunger of my heart. Or you are the living water that quenches the thirst and the desperation in my soul. Or this morning, give us insights to see what would set us free. We'd be once again returning to our first love. You, Lord. Not something past you, but you. You, Lord. Let's stand up together and close in this song.